welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello and welcome to Great Shot Kid, the Nerd Party Network's podcast that looks at the creative and technical influences and works of Star Wars creators. I'm John. And I'm Mike. And this week we have... We have a chock full of goodness for you this week, but uh, just a quick reminder that you can find the show, as always, at thenerdparty.com slash greatshotkid. If you want to contact us, thenerdparty.com slash contact. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thenerdparty, and the network Twitter handle is at joinnerdparty, and we're the Nerd Party over on Instagram with the hashtag greatshotkid. So with all of that out of the way, Mike, we have a uh, rip-roaring good show to get into. Uh, as promised uh, later in the show, we will begin our chapter-by-chapter analysis of Alan Dean Foster's 1978 classic Splinter of the Mind's Eye, the very first instance of Star Wars Expanded Universe writing ever. And first, we're going to talk, as many others have and many others will, of a little bit of news that uh, that that came out during uh, during my hiatus here, that uh, we have a new director for episode nine, and uh, what it means and what it indicates for our uh, our esteemed franchise that we all know and love so well. And of course, that director is J.J. Abrams. Yeah. So, Mike, give me your first reaction. Take us back. You read the news. What's your first reaction? My first reaction was a little bit of surprise that it wasn't Ryan Johnson because I didn't see the story where you know they said that he he passed, but um, passed on the project. That is, yes, uh, <laughs> he's still with us, folks. He, he is still with us. Um, yes, but uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I guess my first reaction was, oh. All right, you know, because I'm a big fan of JJ, and you know, slightly after that, it was like kind of disappointing they didn't get someone new. But yeah. if you're not going to get someone new, that's pretty much the best person you could get. I think that he is the best living director of Star Wars out there. That that's a bold, bold claim because Mr. Lucas is still with us, so I think he's still. Uh, deserves that title but hey you know that's all our i think our opinions i think abrams is a better director i you know i disagree okay you know fair. you know I'm i disagree sure, i'm sure i'm sure most people disagree but i mean no I mean, we can, we I can mean, definitely no, not not necessarily there are plenty of people who would side with you and and there are people who would side with me and and, and that's fine is he the best director that's currently working in the Star Wars franchise as it exists today, owned by Disney and Lucas has retired. Uh, probably, yeah. I'd give him that one. I sure. Mean, I mean, Ryan, I mean, un- Ryan Johnson yeah, is certainly up there, you know. Yeah. But, I, but I mean, I mean, and here's the thing. Like, I mean, I guess you could even say that maybe I like, well, I don't even know if I would say that I like George Lucas's movies better than J.J. Abrams' movies, to be honest. But I can honestly answer that one too. Yeah, I, I know, I know. But yeah. you know, I mean, I guess the thing is, it's like I don't think that J.J. Abrams could create the Star Wars universe. But I've always thought, and I think a lot of people think. I think he thinks, to be honest. I think George Lucas thinks this that you know, when it comes to direction, he knows when to delegate 
you know? I mean, this is, I think, why Empire and Jedi are so great. It's because he's like, I'm going to let someone who maybe has a stronger skill set in that area take care of that, you know, even if he is going to be pulling the strings behind the screen behind the scenes you know it's like is he the best person to write a script maybe not is he the best person to direct maybe not but can he assemble a team and come up with ideas and fuel the these other people's creativity yeah you know okay see uh, okay fine that word ideas though is, is the one that really trips me up in the in the conversation here where we're talking you know lucas versus abrams and keep in mind I'm an Abrams fan. I came around on The Force Awakens. I enjoy The Force Awakens. I really love The Force Awakens. But it's that ideas thing that that still trips me up a bit. Because Mission Impossible 3 is a really good uh, movie. It's a, it's an, I, I would say it's probably... You know, the most impressive debut somebody could have outside of, you know, when you're talking the auteur filmmakers like like Spielberg and Lucas and stuff like that. Like, you know, I, I think that's a really well put together film and, and all of those things. But it it's Abrams's ideas are not usually the most original out there. I, I would say that's probably a fair point. I mean, Super 8 is a very touching movie. Uh, for the majority of it, but it's really a a capitulation of Spielberg's influence on his life and filmmaking and storytelling. And Mission Impossible 3 is essentially, I mean, this is a um, movie series that's based on a TV series, which is basically fairly roughed out for you from the beginning. Force Awakens, if there's a knock against it, is that some of the ideas there weren't the freshest in the entire saga. And so like, that's where I would, I would rather see a director who maybe doesn't get the best performances out of a cast, but has an endless font of ideas than, uh, somebody who gets great performances out of a cast, but the movies sometimes feel a little bit stale around the edges. I mean, that, that's that exact same criticism can be extended towards Spielberg, who is a terrific director in his own right. And this is purely in the context of whether I prefer Lucas or Abrams and, you know, and, and for me, I also, you know, I just, I, I, you know, I, I'm highly tuned, I guess, to the, the visual aesthetic of Lucas. Like I, I prefer Lucas's visual aesthetic to many other people out there. So that's, but that's just me. And that's, you know, one, one of the strongest points I have in, in Abrams's favor is, you know, his visual aesthetic completely lines up with with my my own personal tastes you know what i mean sure. it's like when i think of action blockbuster filmmaking when i think of you know seeing something you know opening weekend on the big screen and cinemascope and being completely blown away by you know sort of like the energy and and uh, the the visuals and everything the editing everything like that which is on display like i think of Abrams, you know, I think of his work on But but doesn't that speak right back to what you were saying about, you know, oh well Lucas can assemble a team and Abrams assembles a team too. I mean, these people make him look terrific. I'd say that it, you know, if if you give Abrams an edge, it's because he does get really energetic performances from his cast. And 
only hires people that can run really fast. <laughs> Whereas Lucas is much more of a, a shot composition and, and editing type of guy. No, I mean, I definitely think that's true, but I think like the, the, the difference there is that um, in a lot of ways, I think Lucas is more hands off in that regard, you know, where like Abrams is specifically hiring people in order to get his vision on the screen, like his exact vision on the screen. Whereas I think Lucas, I know this is going to sound weird talking about Lucas, but he actually lets go a, a bit. You know, he lets people do their own thing, and then once he sees what they, they've they done, then he'll step in. You know, I'm just thinking about, like, the situation with Jedi, for example, or even with Empire, you know? It's like he wasn't on set for those movies. You know, we, we've read the, the, you know, making of Empire Strikes Back where you see them improvising dialogue on set, and it's like, you know, once it gets back and once it's edited, he's like, okay... You know, we need to change things, but he's not there. And and even, you know, like in the case of, you know, some of these things like Jedi or Red Tails or whatever, he actually goes in and does the reshoots himself or whatever, you know, whatever it he, is. He, uh, well, and, okay, see, the thing is, this is a whole separate, con- this, this goes down into a whole other rabbit hole, because if you have read Making of Empire Strikes Back, you find out that Kirshner was actually falling so far behind that second unit wound up taking a ton of stuff off of his plate mm-hmm. that so there there's almost like a co-director status going on there because there was a lot of second unit stuff that that had to be brought in but then of course it sounds like I'm sitting there and bashing on Kirshner which I'm not because it was still his team putting things together and his look and his flow and and, and all of those sorts of things so all of I, I mean the thing is I think that's just like that's a whole big thing there I I I cannot disagree with you that Abrams is a he is a great director. He really and truly is. I find it intriguing. I thought he would get involved to be the person to wade in and sell the idea to somebody to work for Lucasfilm. To say, listen, I'm J.J. Abrams. Everybody loves me. And I loved working here. I can get you, you know, come on, we'll get you the right deal. I promise you're not going to get fired. You got you got the J.J. Abrams word here. I didn't think that he would be the guy to come back. Yeah, I mean, I guess they do need to get someone who's big, a big name, in order to do episode nine of, of Star Wars. And, you know, just his reasonings for not doing episode eight and everything, you know, the idea of, I mean, the, the reasons why he turned down episode seven in the first place, just the idea of not wanting to, you know, leave the country, you know, leave his family for you know, like a year or whatever. That's what made me think. And and also, I mean, he hasn't made a movie since episode seven. I really thought that he was going to do something smaller. There was talk of that, uh, that book. I forget what the book was now, but like, Oh, I no, I know the one. Yeah. I can't remember the name of the book, but yeah, there was, there was a book and produce it and maybe star in it. Yeah. And, oh, why can't I remember the name? Hey, if 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 anybody out there can remember it, go to at join nerd party on Twitter and hashtag great shot kid. Let us know what that was. Like you know, I really thought that he would do the Nolan thing, you know, and and do something small, and and then maybe go back and do another big blockbuster, not Star Wars, but that surprised me. I mean, I've got to think that they were like, here's. $15 million, you know, not exaggerating on that at all, right? If not more, 
you know, go, you know, we're desperate. We need you desperately, you know, here, you'll never have to work again for the rest of your life after this. You know what I mean? Um, well, well, what's really super interesting to me about it is again, getting back to what, you know, people have now fallen back to beating up. Everybody loves to pretend like the force awakens was not extremely well received. And a lot of people loved it. It was, and they did. And there were some knocks on it about, oh, you're just regurgitating this. And so, you know, the soft reboot uh, is what has struck a lot of people in hindsight as, as what they didn't like. What I find really intriguing about the situation is two things. One, he becomes the first director besides Lucas to direct more than one Star Wars film. Mm-hmm. And two, he's finishing Ryan Johnson's story. So with episode seven, he's restarting Lucas's. And then with episode nine, he's finishing Ryan Johnson's. Is it? And that's, is it really though, or is it more? It like is a, because they because Ryan Johnson said they had no real roadmap. That he he came in and we we've talked about this where he came in and they said yeah do it whatever sure write a script and he and he did and they thought it was great and they talked on and on about how great they thought the script was and everything like that and so. In a sense, Abrams has to wrap up everything that Johnson sets up. But Johnson had to basically do the same thing. Like, he needs to, to follow Abrams's lead as well. And, I mean, I don't think that Abrams necessarily has a problem with that because if you, you know, read the press, you know, when Episode 7 was coming out, and they're like, oh, you know, Episode 8, you know, Ryan Johnson, you know, he's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm looking at what Johnson is doing, and I kind of wish that I was doing it because it's so cool. You know, so right. he's I, definitely down with whatever Johnson is doing in episode eight, you know? Right. I, I'm just saying it, it It speaks, I guess, to your point about I thought he would do something a little more personal in between. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, th- this is essentially, I think, indicative very much of the era that we're in with filmmaking in general of it being more of almost a TV production yeah. mindset. Yeah. And since Abrams comes from a TV background, I don't think that's a bad thing for him. I think of the big name directors, he's a good guy to slot in to do the next episode, fittingly called an episode, but do the next episode of a series. Yeah, although at this point, I think he's pretty much graduated to showrunner status when it comes to these movies. You know what I mean? He's he's gonna do <laughs> right. he's gonna do episode seven, which is the pilot. You know, maybe he'll come back for the big finale, but I don't. I mean, he he really does kind of treat his career like he does a, a television, like like a, a showrunner does. You know, the the idea of like you start something up and then you move on to the next thing. I mean, that's how you're pushed in a, in a business sense. You know, I mean, I was just listening to the 50 year mission book on the audible and, um, you know, Iris Stephen bear is on there talking about how, you know, ever since season from season four on, basically as soon as he became an executive producer and ran deep space nine for a year, his agent was trying to convince him to leave and do something else because he wasn't benefiting from it career-wise, you know, and that's kind of like the philosophy. I know that things have changed a bit in terms of like, you know, these sort of like auteur-driven shows, but, you know, that's for your Mad Men and your, you know, Breaking Bads. That's not for your, you know, 
Legends of Tomorrow and, you know, uh, Gifteds or whatever. You know what I mean? It's I do. I do. I, I mean, the, the thing that will strike me as strange is that I'll be I'm endlessly curious about the visual aesthetic mm-hmm. about will it feel jarring to go from Abrams, which I mean, episode seven looks beautiful. It really does. It's a gorgeous film. And then you go to episode eight and I'm familiar with Johnson's aesthetic as you are and seeing how that plays into it and then snapping back. I don't see Abrams changing his style in a substantial way. So we, it's almost like we, we revert. There's, there's no, like, at least with, say, for instance, Jedi, I mean, even with the prequels, like Lucas refined his style and moved things forward. What is it about? Can we expect any change from Abrams? Can we expect him to adapt or try something different? Or is it, is it, and this is, this sounds dismissive and it's not intended to be, but do we already know what it's going to look like, basically? Do we already know how this film looks and feels? I think the lurking variable there is that these are all Star Wars episode films. And that is going to be a much greater influence than any other individual filmmaker's style. So while Episode Seven is definitely a J.J. Abrams movie, it's also J.J. Abrams doing Star Wars, you know? And I imagine that that's what episode eight is going to be as well. So while you have that 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 change from one director to the other, you also have that through line of the Star Wars aesthetic. And I think that that's going to be mm-hmm. consistent uh, across the board. That's going to lend itself to consistency. So, yeah. Well, he, here, here's an interesting question then for you. Because the variable we haven't talked about yet is Kasdan is not coming back. Kasdan looks like the Han Solo movie is it for him. And so Chris Terrio comes on board to co-write this with Abrams. It's an interesting what choice. What do you think that does? I think it's an interesting choice. I really do. Um, He's not known for light and funny things like he, movies with Ewoks in them. Argo is a pretty damn funny movie. Argo finds its humor from some pretty tense situations. And yes, I, okay, yes, Alan Arkin and John Goodman are flat out hysterical. But that is, that's not, I mean, hey, if he brought that type of humor to a Star Wars movie, that would truly be groundbreaking. (laughs) But, you know, but, you know, I mean, okay, despite my, my, ongoing trailer embargo i i have seen a couple of trailers for for justice league because i i saw one in 70 millimeter and i'm like i want to see what this looks like in 70 millimeter it might be my only chance so i watched the trailer and there's definitely humor in that i mean i think the trailer that i saw saw was pre-joss so you know there's definitely a a an effort to lighten up the tone of of Batman versus Superman and really that's all he's written like that's all that's it right i mean argo batman versus superman argo see the thing is the the thing is bringing terrio in especially because of him having written argo still there's a there's that burning fire in me that wants to kidnap uh, michael arnt and and just 
not you know not do anything bad but like ply him with alcohol and fine foods and say you know why don't you come back and write something you he worked with lucas for a while for the you know on the on the development of what was going to be episode seven the, the mysterious episode seven none of us know why wouldn't you bring back Arndt? why wouldn't you bring him back into the fold he's already there and he's already you know he's tapped that wellspring as it were I think Michael aren't coming back even if you want him to. You know, he's, uh, I think he's been wronged by, by Lucasfilm. I don't know. That's just my guess. You know, I mean, Probably. no, I mean, I, I don't know. I, 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 maybe, maybe, you know, who knows how these things work, but it sounds like basically he worked on it for a while and then they threw out all of his stuff and started from scratch, right? So, I mean, you still got a credit on episode seven. Sure. Yeah. A teeny I mean, credit, I, but a I guess you gotta, you gotta think of it in this case. It's not like they've, it, at least the way that it's sounding, the way that it's being credited, the way that it's being announced and everything. It doesn't sound like they've brought on Terrio to like write the script and then JJ is rewriting it. It doesn't sound like that's what's happening. It sounds like Terrio is Abrams' writing partner. And what's the reason behind that? It could be, you know, and I mean, going back to our theory that, you know, they had to really scramble and maybe throw out everything that they had once, you know, Carrie Fisher passed away. Like, maybe, you know, obviously they were desperate, right? You're desperate to to, to get this thing off the ground. Yeah. I'm sure that they were taking pitches from every writer in town. And maybe it was Terrio who came to them and said, here's how we hack this Gibson. And they're like, that's a good idea. Now we need to get a director on board. And once they got JJ on board, JJ being a writer himself and everything is like, okay, I like your idea, Chris Terrio. Now let's write this together. You know what I mean? It just needs another Starkiller base. Maybe that's all it needs. Sorry. Lame joke. <laughs> Easy grab. Had to go for it. I just, I, I couldn't resist. You know, but I mean, Terrio, he is a good writer. I mean, everyone, I mean, it, it's it's a dangerous, tr- I mean, I guess they're relying on the fact that most people don't care who, who writes these things, right? Because No, I mean, most people have no idea who writes these things. <laughs> so it's not they like people not are going to be like, oh my God, from the writer of Batman versus Superman? Ew, you know, most people well, yeah. <laughs> aren't going to say that, you know? Most people are, that, are, that aren't going to notice it. You know, obviously you're going to get people who are going to say that, but like to me, um, we, I mean, we, it's, Batman versus Superman for one thing is not that bad of a movie. You know, I, I actually enjoy it. Quite we'll be a bit. discussing it here on Great Shot Kid at some point in the future. I'm sure we will be. And and I, I'm yeah. I'm current. If you go to commentarytrackstars.com, God willing, our three-hour commentary for that will be up um, by the time you hear this. Cross your fingers. I, I'm hoping that it is up because I will need something playing in the background while I watch that film. <laughs> but, you know, Argo, I mean, that's... I mean, he won a freaking Oscar for Argo, okay? I mean... Deservedly so. Argo is Argo is a fantastically written picture. Yeah. It is, it is wonderful from top to bottom. It it sings. It's one of those things where the casting and direction just made it better. You could actually see where it started on the page and why it worked so well. 
there were so many elements in that that were just great from the beginning. Yeah. And a real tribute to screenwriting. And I'm really looking forward to Justice League as well, I have to say. You know, I, I don't have any reason to think that movie is going to be bad because just like J.J., you know, Zack Snyder is a really good director, if you ask me. Like, I think maybe sometimes his material isn't the best, but no one shoots a movie like Zack Snyder. His movies are uh, gorgeous. He, he leaves a visual imprint that is unmistakable, and that may sound like a backhanded compliment, but that's always been the most frustrating thing for me about Snyder is that I I find him to never, not never, but rarely live up to what I see him capable of. I, like, I, I want to see material that matches... And you know what? You might disagree with me on this, but I mean, three hundred. I yeah, I do love three hundred. I thought three hundred was was a really well made film, and I really enjoyed it from top to bottom. And I have a pleasant memory of seeing that with my brother in the theater and digging the whole thing. But then I also have the memory of seeing his remake of Dawn of the Dead and sticking with it for about the first third, and then looking at my friend Joey because we were both fans of the original Dawn of the Dead and looking at him saying it's losing me man this is this isn't quite matching up and then flaming out at the end I mean that's that's sort of the story of Zack Snyder for me is I might see something and be like hey that's pretty good and then I see something that's not good at all that didn't work for me you know and Watchmen was a, a big whiff for me it looked great but it just didn't click I think the only Snyder movie that I haven't liked is the Owl movie, um, Legends of the Guardians or whatever, Legends of the Owls. Oh, Legends yeah, I didn't make it more than like 10 minutes into that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that, that movie was bad. But I think, uh, I mean, like I, I love Dawn of the Dead. I thought 300 was fine. You know, it was kind of dumb, but whatever. Um, you know, but visually speaking i mean like what what i mean i don't just mean his movies look beautiful but they do but i mean that he's a really good visual storyteller like you can turn off the sound watch the movies and you know get these stories you know I, I, whether they're good or bad stories you you know exactly uh what he's he's saying visually i mean it's I remember like seeing Sucker Punch, which I know everyone hates, you know, and I, I think it's probably never seen it actually because everybody's reviews of it were so negative that I just didn't bother. Everyone, everyone hates it. I don't know. I I think it's really, really good to be honest. Um, I, it might be his best movie in my opinion, and I definitely see the criticisms. Okay, fine, but it's. Really, that visual storytelling, which I think is astounding, you know, and there's like a lot of weird things in terms of like dreams within dreams and blah, blah, blah. And the way that they, you know, these things progress. And I mean, the the, the sort of like um, expanse of technique which is used throughout is really really impressive and some of the best action sequences you'll ever see some of the best use of music you'll ever see like in action sequences i know everyone's probably going to be like you're insane mike you're insane that's fine whatever you can say that i'm i'm cool with that i i, I, I like <laughs> he hosts he co-hosts two shows with me weekly he's used to somebody <laughs> calling him insane on a pretty regular basis trust me I, i'm i'm going to say it right here you know if if Matt Rushing can say that Batman versus Superman is Zack Snyder's best movie, I can say that Sucker Punch is Zack Snyder's best movie. 
You heard it here first, folks, uh, in our go. discussion about uh, about storytelling and technique. Uh, but I promise everybody that we will, in the future, be discussing Batman versus Superman here on Great Shot Kids, something I never in my life thought would happen. I never thought that there would be an excuse to force me to watch that movie again. It's it's but, the wild, wild west here in uh, at, at Lucasfilm. <laughs> you never know who's going to start working on a Star Wars movie. So. The Boba Fett movie directed by David Lynch. I'm hoping. Oh, yeah. I got to, you know, I can hope it now. Yep. So, yep. but speaking of storytelling, uh, let's get to uh, one of our, our, our ongoing bits here, which is going to be going into Splinter of the Mind's Eye by Alan Dean Foster. So everybody put on your uh, your reading hats and your reading glasses and uh, pull up a nice glass of whatever you like to drink. And welcome to our reading corner here on Great Shot Kid. Now, just as a reminder, we're doing this chapter by chapter analysis inspired by another show here on the Nerd Party called Alpost which looks at the Harry Potter series chapter by chapter. It's a very popular show, and it really seems to uh, ring a bell for for the Potter fans, so uh, go ahead and check that out. But inspired by that, I found out that, Mike, you've never read Splinter of the Mind's Eye before, correct? No, I read the comic book that uh, I believe Terry Austin did uh, in the 90s where they basically modified the story in order to make it work you know, with the entire trilogy in place already. Right. They, they canonized it mm-hmm. well, as sort of. terrible as that term is completely out of place for that, but eh, it works. You know, let's just say it that way. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so th- this is for anybody who doesn't know splinter of the mind's eye was written as a sequel to star Wars, uh, based on the idea that if star Wars, uh, flopped which lucas was pretty convinced it was going to he thought it might do okay and so he had alan dean foster write a sequel to star wars using certain plot ideas using certain stuff from things that alan dean foster had been allowed to see because he of course ghost wrote the original star wars novelization and the idea was this would be a low-budget way for Lucas to make a sequel to Star Wars, especially if it was, you know, less than successful. A lot of Lucas's decision-making on that front was undoubtedly inspired by his frustration, which he has voiced numerous times to THX 1138, where he felt he had boxed himself in, and then the 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 box office failure of it made it impossible for him ever to really return to that world again. He actually said in an interview that he had always wanted to explore the idea of going back to that world, but he felt that the story was done and it wasn't well-received, so why bother? So we see him planning an escape route to continue Star Wars stories because if a book is published and you can say it's based on a book, so much the better. I mean, he's essentially getting Alan Dean Foster to write his first story treatment for him. And it makes writing that much easier. So we have Splinter of the Mind's Eye. And we're here in the first chapter. All that we know up to this point, if we've never read it before, is that on the cover is a, a very beautiful, actually, painting of Darth Vader and Shadow standing on what looks to be a chasm between uh, Luke and Leia and himself and a glowing red gem. And so we open it up. And Mike, where do we find ourselves in chapter one? Well, uh, 
Luke and Leia in separate ships. Luke is in an X-Wing and Leia is in a Y-Wing along with 3PO. Luke's with R2. They are flying to uh, a planet where the people on the planet are definitely um, sympathizing with the Rebellion, but they haven't joined the Alliance yet. And, you know, they're at kind of a, a crucial stage and there's like another planet which is going to basically join the alliance if these guys do. So Luke and Leia need to basically negotiate with the leaders of this planet to be like, hey, join our rebellion uh, in order to get not one but two systems. Uh, But in the process, uh, they run into some turbulence or whatever, and they both... Leia's ship develops some convenient technical problems. Yes, yes. And she crash lands on this planet and Luke in an attempt to, you know, go after her also crash lands on the planet. And at this point, you know, the, the entire chapter is told from Luke's perspective and it's really sort of about Luke after he crash lands on the planet, beginning his journey, uh, to find Leia, which is, you know, kind of like finding a needle in a haystack. And if he's lucky, He'll find her in like a week if he's going in the right direction, which and if something in this sort of swampy, uh, jungly place doesn't kill him first. So, uh, yeah, that's. that's yeah, it, it. it's funny you mention that the the system is Sercarpus. They're on the way to Sercarpus four uh, and they wind up crash landing on Sercarpus five. And the planet is also called Mimbin. And did you, I mean, you mentioned Swampy. There was something rather familiar about uh, the topography and the cloud layer around Mimbin, wasn't there? there yeah. It just seems a little familiar, doesn't the it? The entire crash sequence felt extremely like the crash sequence on Dagobah, you know? Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious as to how exactly that all went down because I've got to think that someone was influenced by someone. I mean... We, we've seen this before. Like, there's that memo, you know, which we, I think we've brought up on numerous occasions where, where um, Lucas, Kasdan, and Spielberg are breaking the story for Raiders. And they come up with this whole sequence where Indy is in a plane and the plane is, you know, set to crash and the, the, the pilots jump out of the plane with, with parachutes and leave him with no fuel. So he's got to grab a raft out of the back of this plane and use it to, you know, slide down a mountain to safety. Like, you can read the entire inception of that scene when these three guys were breaking the story for Raiders. And obviously that's what was used at the beginning of Temple of Doom. So, you know, obviously this is how these things work, right? I've got to think that either Lucas, you know, I'm, I'm assuming Lucas maybe sat down with Foster at some point along the way and was like, yeah. here's the story, whatever. And either when they were breaking this novel or, you know, after this novel was out, Lucas is like, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that in Empire. That's That's good visuals, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say that there's something even more likely is that Lucas had a bank of planets and planet names uh, going into Star... I mean, everybody knows the long, torturous process he took to write the script for Star Wars. Like, it was pure agony for him, and he, he just kept generating all of these ideas. So I'm sure that Mimbin and Dagobah come from the same 
note somewhere along the way. Uh, and on top of that, it actually, you know, where could you film it? Now, it, it's not exactly like Dagobah because there are open spaces. It's it's not the big closed canopy that, that we've seen on screen for Dagobah. It's almost like a melding of Kashyyyk and Dagobah because, there, you know, there are giant trees and expanses and then there's the cloud layer and then there's swampy parts. And so, there, you know, there's this mishmash of things. Um, the first Mimbanite that Luke runs across is actually an uh, essentially an eight-legged creature, but four of the legs act as arms, and four of the legs act as legs. And I can see in my mind, knowing this was written in 1978, with the idea of a low-budget film in place, Lucas thinking along the lines of what he originally envisioned for Jabba, of, we'll do this with stop motion. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll have a Ray Harryhausen type of effect in here. Uh, we'll figure it out by that point. Because that was the whole reason, you know, Jabba got scrapped. They they had this idea that they were going to, you know, mat something over top and they were going to figure out some way to do it. They couldn't figure it out. They couldn't make it look good. There's, you know, so they drop it. And so Lucas, as evidenced by some of the other things that he has brought back or revisited, very easily would have said, well, use this because this is something I couldn't use this time and we'll figure it out by the time we get there. But, you know, and, and at at the same time, with it being low budget, you can easily see this as some piece of earth that they would film it on, that they wouldn't need to go anywhere exotic. Yeah. You know, I mean, there is that that Star Wars thing where it's like every planet is like some region of earth, you know, but no planet has like varying regions. It's like one is all forest. Oh, this one is all water. This one is all desert. So, you know, it's just kind of carrying on that great tradition, I guess. Yeah, well, that's what made Naboo so jarring in uh, in episode one was, oh my gosh, more than one terrain on a planet. Mm-hmm. What's happened here? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that that's our first chapter. Luke has crash-landed, and he's on his way to find Leia. And, um, you know, I, I guess this is minor spoiler territory, but it's very clear that uh, they had not, uh, even in this first chapter, completely sold themselves on the idea of Luke and Leia being related. Yeah. <laughs> because Luke has a musing at one point that's, that's a little uncomfortable if you're blood-related. I'd yeah, say. which is there in the other. It's it's there in episode four as well. It's there in, sure. in episode five, even you know. So yeah. you know they they can still play around with that, and you know I, what I find to be most interesting about this is you know we just talked about like Ryan Johnson picking up the torch from J.J. Abrams, and now J.J. Abrams picking up the torch from Ryan Johnson and everything, and how there wasn't a plan, and how you know each chapter is sort of like seat seat of your pants, you know, filmmaking in terms of telling this trilogy. And in a lot of ways, I guess you could kind of say that this is what was going on here, you know? Is this episode five, in a sense, in some alternate reality where instead of George Lucas continuing the story to completion, he hands it off to Alan Dean Foster to come up with something, and then maybe someone else comes up with an idea for Star Wars 3, which is completely unrelated. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting to see what might have been if another writer takes what they see in Star Wars and develops their own um, sequel to that. And, uh, you know, I, I think that that's interesting and it'll be really interesting to see how it manifests itself, you know, throughout this. 
I agree. And uh, we look forward to continuing on this journey through Splinter of the Mind's Eye with you. Uh, in the interim, Mike, where can people find you online? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can also find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com doing a show called Commentary Track Stars. And you can find me on Trek.fm doing a show called The Edge and another show called Stage 9 with you. That's right. You do Stage 9 with me where we look at the works and influences of Star Trek creators, and it's an exciting time with Star Trek Discovery coming up. And you can also find me right here on the network co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations with Matthew Rushing, which is a Star Wars show of a slightly different sort. And you can find me co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. And if you want to interact with me online somewhere, just look for Kessel Junkie. That's who I am. So thanks for joining us for this part, and we look forward to seeing you next week on Great Shot Kid. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.